Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. We've got, a, I think, a pretty interesting show today. We are going to talk about a few interesting topics. We're going to talk about Lorenzo Cain and how he might age. We're going to look back at the past to see how similar Lorenzo Cain's uh, aged and if that's actually going to make for a good deal on the free agent market. We're going to talk about Garrett Cole and how the StatCast numbers look at him because he's always popping up in rumors. We're going to look at Ozzy Albies, who had a fantastic debut for the Braves, and then finally, Listener questions. We got some really good questions, uh, and I appreciate that very much. But first, Matt, we need to have a, I say, a, a bigger picture philosophical discussion, and we might need the listeners' help. Uh, as you and everybody knows, we talk about X Woba on the show a lot, right? I think probably our favorite tool right now. It's something we use a ton. It's 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 probably has the most broad application of any Statcast metric we have. And why don't you explain? Quickly to our listeners, exactly what it is again, just a refresher. X Woba is short for expected Woba, and uh, that means a couple of things. Expected base- weighted on base, that is. Well, that, that, see, this is exactly my point. This requires a lot of explanation. Uh, weighted on base, for those who don't know, is like on base percentage, except you get more and more credit for uh, extra base hits. It's not every time on base being treated the same. So that's weighted on base. Expected weighted on base is the StackCast version of that. It looks at quality of contact based on uh, X velocity and launch angle, and it combines it with Im- amount of contact, so strike and walks and it really comes up for either hitters or pitchers with a quality of contact metric and it's cool because it takes out the effects of ballpark takes out the effects of good defense or poor defense and it really gets down to the skill now as you may have noticed there are two things there it took me about a minute and a half to explain all that and also x woba is not exactly the most uh, user-friendly name so we have a question for all of our listeners out there we're trying to come up with a new name potentially for x woba something that's more user-friendly something that it counts for the fact that it's both amount of contact and quality of contact, and uh, I think we could we could use some suggestions, right? And if we find one we like, we'll send you a T-shirt or something. You can come on the show, uh, and it just it's a really powerful tool, and it's hard for us to use a little bit because we have to explain so much about Mike it. Mike promising merch off the cuff, I love it. I will have to go to uh, our good friend Arturo and see if we actually have anything to say. But I'm sure anyway, we do. Uh, please, we're soliciting some uh, interesting comments, hopefully from the uh, very intelligent listeners of our show. Please hit up one of us or both of us on Twitter, and uh, we'll see what we come up with. Maybe it'll be maybe it'll be cool. And our Twitter Twitter handles are, if you don't know, I'm at MT Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S, and Mike is... Mike underscore Petriello, P-E-T-R-I-E-L-L-O. So uh, let's have some fun with that. And then later in the show, we're going to get to some listener questions. we got five really good questions that I want to talk about. But first, Lorenzo Cain. And we've talked about Lorenzo Cain a little bit on the show. And I, it's been my opinion that he is one of the more underrated free agents. He is the only really strong all-around outfielder in my point of view he can hit he can run he can field Uh, there are other outfielders who can hit but maybe not field field but not hit and I really just feel like he's getting lost in the shuffle a little bit and part of that is because every time I tweet about how much I like Lorenzo Cain the feedback is well he's older because he'll be 32 and he relies on his legs and those guys don't age well and then people talk about uh, Jason Hayward you know it wasn't older but obviously he's not been a good signing they talk about Ellsbury they talk about uh, Melvin Upton the examples haven't really worked out in his favor and I thought to myself well is that true? I mean, we can go back and we can find similar guys. Uh, so that's what we did. And we really remembered some guys. We came up with some interesting names here. So briefly on Lorenzo Cain, uh, last year, he hit 300, 363, 440. That's really good. That's about 15 points above average. He's not just a fielder. He can hit. His stack cast numbers, uh, as far as sprint speed goes, he was in the top 4% sprint speed, similar to Trey Turner at 292 feet per second. So even if he declines as he ages, he's starting from a pretty high spot. Uh, plus 15 outs above average. He was one of the top five outfielders by our range metric and a 333 XWOBA, which put him basically at the back end of the top third. So he's a he's a good all-around player. He's not just 
a good fielder. And uh, that's kind of where we started from to go back into the past, obviously pre-Stackcast era. So what I did, I looked back since 1993, since the first of those uh, two 1990s expansion years, and I looked for guys who were similar, who in a three-year span between age 28 and 30 or 29 and 31 had at least 1,000 plate appearances where their weighted runs created plus was between 110 and 120, where they had a positive defensive war value, and where they had at least a quarter of their time as a center fielder. Because I didn't really want Ken Griffey. I mean, Kane's good. He's not a superstar. He's not an all-time elite guy like that. And we came up with 10 names. And I, I was really happy with some of these names. Uh, you want? Do you want? Which ones? Maybe read them off and then tell me who you like the best. Um, it is an interesting list of names. Um, Garrett Anderson, Mike Cameron, Brett Gardner, Curtis Granderson, Tory Hunter, Andrew Jones, Kenny Lofton, Reggie Sanders, Shane Victorino, and Randy Wynn. So the first thing that stands out to me is those were all very good players. They, yes. they all made, I believe, at least one All-Star team during their career. And I really, I really like Tory Hunter the best on this list, and that's partially because they both reached free agency after their age 31 season. So even the timing works out really well here. And they, I mean, similar profiles, right-hand hitters known for their defense with good but not elite power. Like the, the profiles between... Hunter and Kane are very similar. Hunter is probably more famous at, at the time of his career. He, you know, was sort of kind of the the web gems guy for a while, making acrobatic, very acrobatic catches. But um, I'd say that their pro- over, overall profiles are are pretty similar. And and Hunter ended up being, a pr- it's, he's time with the Angels at that point in his career, if I'm not mistaken. He ended up being a pretty good signing for the Angels. Yeah, he, he did. He ended up uh, ended up moving to right field after a while because uh, you know obviously it's it's hard to play center field at, at that age. Um, but he ended up being pretty good, and, and we have all the numbers here about what these guys did after age 32, and it's mostly positive, right? Like Shane Victorino, his first season at 32 was really, really good. That was his first year with Boston. They won the title in 2013, and then he barely played after that because he got hurt. So eight of these nine guys at least played through 35, uh, but only only three of them actually played center field really ever again after age 32. Now, in Kane's case, I think he can probably stick a little longer, but it's okay if he ends up in right field because he's actually already done it. They've had Gerard Dyson you know, in previous years where he would play some corners, so I don't see it as a problem if he plays center field for another year or two and then moves to a corner. And that's part of why I think Kane is going to be a, a relatively good free agent signing. I think of the the remaining like quote unquote big big name free agents out there, he's the one I'm I'm most bullish on because as you noted before, he's starting from a high a high like what the uh, he's already set a high bar with his speed. Like the fact that yeah he's he's old, but he's still an elite outfielder in terms of outs above average and elite in terms of speed. So like even if there's a drop off, he's still going to be well above average barring, you know, catastrophic injury. And the thing about outfielders is there's always a spot for them. Like there's it's it's similar to relief pitchers where like you're going to sign Kane and yeah, even if he falls off a little bit, you're there's a spot for him on your roster. He's not going to be a complete dead weight where the problem with a guy like Eric Hosmer or someone who's very one position centric is like if they have a fall off, you're really stuck with them. Like if, if Eric Hosmer is a disaster, it's like, well, what do you do with him? You can't like carry a backup first baseman only. Right. I mean, you can have Kane be in a corner or, you know, a couple of years down the road, be a platoon bat or something like that. You're right. There's more flexibility here. Um, and then looking at these guys as they aged, uh, it's really interesting to see what happened. So as I said, Victorino had one good year and that was it. That's kind of the low end here. Garrett Anderson he kind of had his moments, but I don't really see him as a great comp. He he's, play a, a he's, a, he's a terrible comp. Listen, he, he, he made the cut because he did play 25% in center field, but he was never a strong outfielder in the first place. And then he went to a corner and his defense just cratered. That really killed his value. He has such a weird career. He's one of those guys who 
was kind of underrated for a while, and then as soon as people sort of recognized that he was good, way overrated, he immediately <laughs> became wildly overrated. Like I looked, I looked up his, his uh, baseball reference page today. I think in '02 when they won the World Series, he was a five-war player. And then after that, like never like exceeded like two war. I vividly remember him like hitting cleanup for the 2009 Dodgers or whatever, and just making me pull my. He was hair. like like when I was first getting into like really getting into like sabermetrics and like you know online discussion. He was like one of the like flashpoints of you know new school versus old school debate of like old school people. Oh, he's an RBI guy, right? And, like he's a winner. Know, anyone who looked at OBP was like this guy's trash. So I will. I will. Very good career, but not a great comp for Kane. I will admit that he is not a great comp. The other comp on this list, who I don't think is a wonderful comp, is Andrew Jones. Uh, obviously, he had one of the greatest age twenties ever, and then more or less collapsed after that. Although he'd have a little bit of a late career rebound when he was a part-time player for the Yankees and for the White Sox for a year or two, it was actually pretty decent. Uh, but not really the career path I see for Lorenzo Cain, who obviously was not one of the greatest players in history for the first ten years of his career. So as we said, I think Hunter is a perfect comparison. I really like Mike Cameron too. I think that one fits a lot. Another right-handed guy with a little bit of power, a really good outfielder, and you know he had that fluke injury where he ran into Carlos Beltran playing right field. Southfield. Was he? Oh yeah, I guess Beltran was in center field at that point. So that was in his age 32 season. But after that, if you look at the remainder of his career. From age 32 and beyond, he still got over 3,000 plate appearances. He still was worth almost 17 wins above replacement. It's about 10% above average with the bat. I mean, if that's the outcome here for Lorenzo Cain, I think you're pretty satisfied. With well, that. we look, I mean, we, you know, I mentioned, when I read the names, I, I mentioned Brett Gardner. He's not actually included in our in the historical research that Mike did because his career is still going on. We don't know. But we, so we have nine names. Six of the nine had 10 war or more. The low end was Randy Wynn at 10 war. The high end was Kenny Loft at a 24 war. And at the floor for the rest of Lorenzo Cain's career is 10 war. That's pretty good. Like, it doesn't sound great, but like, that means he has, let's say, if he, if he, let's say he signs a four year deal and has three, three war seasons and a one war season, you're feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, I don't, there's no expectation here he's going to get five years on a contract. My guess is like three and an option, or maybe someone says, okay, fine, here's your four. You know, can I just take a minute to air some grievances? Kenny Lofton got shafted in so many different ways. Kenny Lofton, his age 40 season was actually really, really good, and nobody would sign him the next year. Kenny Lofton got one and done on the Hall of Fame ballot a couple years ago. It's it's criminal. He should be a Hall of Famer, not not getting 3% of the voter every year. Yeah, not, not to go too far off tangent, but I'm going to go on a Hall of Fame tangent now that you've, you've begun the Hall of Fame tangent. And this is part of my um, my feeling about Omar Vizquel. It's like it's so weird that Omar Vizquel is getting all this attention when he had teammates who, to me, are ahead of the line of like, him. Like Kenny Lofton. Kenny Lofton and Albert Bell, in my opinion. Okay, good one. Um, who would put in the head of the line. That's my favorite about Omar Vizquel. It's like, it's not like, oh, I don't think he should be a Hall of Famer, but like, I just feel like, get in line. Like, there's so many guys who are not in the Hall of Fame from his era who are either still languishing on the, on the ballot or fell off who were better players. So it's like, if you're a big hall guy, and I'm, I've actually be, over the years become a big hall guy because I realized how modern players are so underrepresented in the Hall of Fame, but... Vizquel is way behind so many guys. This, I, we're like so off topic here. I have to point out one more Hall of Fame thing. I just learned this the other day, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I don't think the years are 100% correctly. But I think every year from like 1962 to 1983, something along those lines, if you looked at every player on the ballot in those years, at least 10 of those men would eventually get into the Hall of Fame, but either through regular voting or the Veterans Committee. So now when I hear, oh, we can't expand the ballot past 10 because, you know, that would be too many guys in the Hall of Fame, that literally happened for like 25 years in a row that more than 10 guys in the ballot 
got in. And that's not a new thing. I'm talking about 50 years ago. So and we've expanded like four times I, since I, then. Anyway. I have so many thoughts about the whole fight. Anyway, the point is, we both like Lorenzo Cain. And just because he is more of a guy based on his speed and his and his legs, there are good outcomes here. If he's Tory Hunter, that's fantastic. If he's Mike Cameron or, or Curtis Granderson, depending on what kind of deal he gets, I, I think that there are very good outcomes in his future. What? Um, who should sign him? Everybody should sign him. Who should sign him? The Giants should obviously sign him. I still think the Mets should probably sign him. Uh, there's room for the Dodgers to sign him. The Rangers are apparently actually talking to him. Uh, there's there's a lot of teams. The Blue Jays help. keep popping up. We've talked Blue about Jays, him in the Blue Jays. The Rockies. Are... Oh, I so would love him with the Rockies. I mean, the, uh, the Giants are the obvious one to me. I don't think it's going to happen. But there's at least ten different teams right there. We, we, we talked about this a little bit in the yeah. last episode. I would, if I'm the Rockies, I sign him instead of. Wade Davis. So I, I actually 100% agree with you. So I don't actually know where he's going to go, uh, but we do have some new rumors to talk about. Garrett Cole is on the trade market, but very first, let's take a minute to tell you about the MLB Pipeline podcast, which focuses on all things draft and prospect related. MLB Pipeline's draft and prospect gurus Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo join Tim McMaster each week to talk about what's going on in the universe of MLB's future stars. Last week, Jim, Jonathan, and Tim discussed the candidates for the number one slot on their upcoming prospect rankings and a few players who might be ready to jump into the middle of the top 100. For that and more, search MLB Pipeline in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts and click subscribe. Now, as to Garrett Cole, it seems like the rumors keep popping up about Garrett Cole. He's Yankees for a while. Now it's the Astros. Do you think, let's just start here. Is he going to get traded? I don't think, I think if he gets traded, I think it'll happen midseason because he has um, two years of club control left. The You know, the issue is with, with these, you know, sort of guys coming up against free agency under the the the, the current uh, free agency rules is if you get traded during your your final year before free agency, you cannot receive a qualifying offer. And he's got two more years he's left. Two, right? He's got two more years left. So the fact of the matter is that it's not until next offseason that the, the Pirates are at risk of losing free agent compensation if they trade him during the season. So I think that, like, you know, the way that it's easier to kind of make a fair trade in the offseason, but if you, when you make trades in the midseason, there's always a chance a team gets desperate. So I think that there's a they could hold on to him Come July, injuries happen. Teams are more desperate to swing a deal. They might be able to actually get more for him in July, and they're not. There's not any urgency, particularly since he came off a little bit of a shaky year. Obviously, with a pitcher, you always run the risk that they're going to get hurt. But for them, I think it's worth it because I also think the there's a non-zero chance the Pirates compete for a wild card spot. So I don't think that they should be so quick to to, to blow it up. Here's a second question: Is Garrett Cole an ace? Right? He's it's it's he had a really good 2015. Right, 208 innings that year. 260 ERA in his, I believe that was his age 24 year. That was really, really good. I uh, got hurt in 2016, only 116 innings, 388 ERA. Last year, through 203 innings, that's good. 426 ERA. Now, there's some underlying numbers behind that, which we'll get into in a minute, but just is he an ace for you? Um, I say no. I say he's like a number three, but I, I might be I low think, on that. I think there's an ace lurking. I okay. Think it's, you know, I wouldn't, cons- I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't pay the ace premium for him now, but I think an interesting team might 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 see him as such and might think that they can get get a little bit of a, um, a quote unquote you know bargain. If the you know the Astros might say we'll do it, and they don't have to, right now like Force Whitley's like the hot prospect. Um, you know, last week Jim Callis did a poll of executives of who's the the best prospect in the game, and Force Whitley got three votes. Um, I like Forrest Whitley, but wow, I'm yeah, a little surprised I'm by just that. Saying, these were these were like uh, it was a poll of like GMs and AGMs, so this was like you know high level folks. So I think that they may be seeing, thinking you know Keiko's a free agent next year. If we can make this deal without having to give up Whitley, maybe we do it, and then maybe they would give up Kyle Tucker in that in that deal because they, maybe they see Cole as as that kind of 
that kind of player. So uh, Garrett Cole had a 312 expected weighted on base last year. The starting pitcher average was 320, so slightly above average. But what's interesting about this is if you look at his last two seasons, uh, in 2016, his expected weighted on base was 310, and last year it was 312. Basically identical. But his ERA jumped about half a run, and a big part of that is because he had a big home run problem. Now, I think part of that is because obviously home runs are up everywhere in Major League Baseball. But I, I look at him... And I know this is going to sound weird because Pittsburgh has this reputation as a place where you go if you're a pitcher to work with Ray Searidge and you get fixed. I almost wonder if he'd be better away from Pittsburgh. And and here's the reason I say that. He reminds me a lot of Carlos Carrasco, who's a pitcher I actually really like. And if you watch Carlos Carrasco pitch, he's got a really good fastball in terms of velocity, but it's straight. There's not a lot of movement to it. So what he does is he throws the fastball and guys have to sit on that. And then he throws his ridiculous off-speed stuff. Now, I don't think Cole's off-speed stuff is quite as good, so I don't look at his ceiling as that. But when you look at the numbers here, he has elite four-seam velocity. His fastball was almost 96 miles an hour last year. That was seventh. I mean, that is elite. But he had middle-of-the-road spin rate, 2165 RPM. The average is 2240. Basically, he was 144th of 225 guys. And we've talked about spin rate a lot. It's not necessarily bad to be low. It just means you get sink. It's good to be high because you miss some bats. In the middle is where you really don't want to be. That's where it's straight. And even though he's got this really high velocity fastball, even in his very good year in 2015, if you look at his fastball that year, which he threw about 50% of the time, and you look at expected weight on a base just against the fastball, his was 50th of 220. And you look at his slider that year, it was 26th. I mean, that's his outpitch. So the reason I say, why should he get out of Pittsburgh? If you look last year at the teams who threw the most fastballs in baseball, it was the Pittsburgh Pirates, 62% fastballs. And if you look at the bottom three teams, Dodgers, Yankees, and Indians, those three teams had pretty good seasons. Now, I'm not saying you can't succeed throwing fastballs, obviously, but if he went to a team like the Yankees, maybe they'd diminish the fastball, throw more breaking pitches. I could see it, I could see it working. Yeah, uh, that's that's I, I had not realized that until about five minutes before the show about the Pirates uh, <laughs> being the number one uh, fastball percentage team in the in in baseball last year. And that's really interesting. And yeah, as you said, Cole kind of has what we've sort of identified as kind of like the Nathan Eovaldi yeah. issue, where it throws really hard but kind of flat, uh, relatively speaking, and it becomes it becomes a hittable pitch. Uh, I don't think he's going to get traded, but I guess we'll you know it, there's a lot of smoke there, so. Maybe. I, I liked the idea when the rumors were the Yankees because he'd be like their fourth starter. You know, that's a really good guy to have as your fourth starter. If you're counting on him to be your ace, I might take the under one on that. Okay. Let's talk about Ozzy Albies. And I, let's start out right up to saying this is not necessarily a ton of stack cast in this, but it's so interesting. I, I thought we had to mention it. Uh, if you don't know Ozzy Albies, he is a second baseman for the Braves and he came up last year for 57 games, 244 plate appearances. But most importantly, he was 20 years old. I think his 21st birthday was like two days ago. So happy birthday, Ozzy Albies. And he had a pretty good year. Uh, hit 286, 354 on base, 456 slugging. So that came out to a 112 weighted runs created, plus 12% above league average. Uh, he's very fast. He had a 28.9 foot per second sprint speed. That's top 5%, similar to Kiermaier. But the important takeaway here is that at age 20, not only was he in the big leagues, but he had an above average big league season. And so we looked into this, and the names that come up when you run a search for guys who had a season like Abby's are just absolutely ludicrous. So, What were the parameters you used? Well, that's what I was going to say. First of all, just being in the big leagues at, at 20 years old, in the 21st century, 0.3 of, of 1% of plate appearances have come from guys who are 20 years old. It's really hard just to get there, and it's almost impossible to get there and be good. So we looked back since 1920, which is basically the modern era of baseball, since 1920, only 30 players across 33 seasons have been 20 or younger, had at least 240 plate appearances, 
and had a weighted runs created plus of 110 or higher. So in at least a partial season, uh, were average or above average at age 20. There are a couple of guys that did this twice, by the way. Bryce Harper did it at 19 and 20, which is absolutely ludicrous. So as I said, there were uh, 30 players who've done this. This is including Albies and also including Raphael Devers, which is uh, you know pretty nice to have both of those guys in the same year. Of the 28 previous guys, and I feel so, it's so unfair to lump Ozzy Albies in with these names, but this is just what the numbers say. Of the 28 previous guys, 14 of them are Hall of Famers. And these are the kind of guys where you don't even need, like they're on a first name basis, you know? Oh, it's it's Ted and Willie and Mickey. Like it's that kind of guy. You know, it's it's Frank Robinson and, and Al Kalon and Ken Griffey Jr. And there's going to be a 15th. Alex Rodriguez is on that list too, not eligible yet. Seven guys didn't make the Hall of Fame, but, you know, had all-star careers, right? Cesar Steno had a good career. Claude L. Washington was a good player for a long time. Uh, Tony Canigliaro might have been a Hall of Famer. Did it twice before age 20. Well, yes, and, and might have been a Hall of Famer. Obviously, had a very tragic story. Uh, you know, Butch Weingar and Terry Poole, these are guys who had long, you know, valuable careers. And then there are five guys who are playing right now who have done this. Uh, Correa, Trout, Harper, Stanton, Hayward. Uh, they've combined for 13 all-star appearances, four MVPs, three rookie of the years, and none of them has played past their age 27 season yet. The point here is not really to say Ozzy Albies is going to be, you know, Mickey Mantle or Frank Robinson, but it's really hard to do what he did. You're almost guaranteed if you're healthy to have an above average career. Yeah, and it was kind of sneaky. I mean, the Braves were not that interesting in the second half, and he just kind of came up. He was a good prospect, but he lost a little bit of his luster. But I think partially because, like, he's not a big guy, so sort of like, okay, what's what's his ceiling? His calling card was kind of his speed and sprint speed. You know, we saw 28.9 feet per second. That's top 5%. It's right in line with Kevin Kiermeyer. So that's kind of gives you a sense of his speed. But what I found interesting when I went and looked at his career track record is how his power has developed. Um, you know, in 2014 in low minors, his debut, one home run and 239 plate appearances. 2015, he goes to low A, zero home runs and 439 plate appearances. Then 2016, between double A AA and triple A, six home runs. All right, you know, we're getting somewhere. And then 2017, nine home runs at triple A, six home runs in the big league, 15 home runs. So clearly he's like, like unlocked something and he's never going to be a power hitter. He's 5'9, like 170. But if he has, you know, gap power with that speed as a second baseman, that's a really interesting dynamic player. Yeah, it's like, in going back to this list, over the last 100 years, only two guys have done this and not had very good careers. Uh, Clint Hurdle, now the manager of the Pirates, you know, had a, uh, had some injury problems. And then a name I'd never heard before, Darrell Griffith did it in 1964 and then had a shoulder injury and was basically done. That's it. So if you've done this, uh, the, the odds are very much in your favor. And, you know, the Braves are trying to rebuild. And I've never been huge on on Dansby Swanson myself, but if you look at Albies and Swanson, and then of course, Ronald Acuna is coming, all of a sudden the Braves are extremely interesting. Oh. Don't forget Andrew Inciarte, Freddie Freeman, Tyler Flowers. They actually had really good catchers last year. I don't know who's going to play third base. I don't know who's going to pitch, but I kind of like... Luis Gohara? Luis Gohara, <laughs> yes. Okay. You know, I mean, this is, this is actually why they're kind of a... could be a sleeper for... A Mustakis or oh, maybe, he'd be perfect. Uh, yeah. You know, there's you know, I would would do not rule out them making a big free agent signing. Yeah, I mean, they've been talked about for you know, last year they wanted Chris Sale, this year maybe Chris Archer. I still think they need pitching, but they're not they're not going to be a 105 loss team this year. They will, they, they'll it, be sneaky good. And then if you look at you know, obviously the, the Nationals are the clear favorite to win that division this year, but Bryce Harper's a free agent, you know, next year, and the Nationals could look a lot different a year from now than they do today. And suddenly the AL East could become pretty open, and maybe it's the Phillies and Braves 
vying for an elite supremacy before you know it. Yeah, it's it's really going to be very interesting to see how that shakes out. Let's end our show. We have five listener questions, and uh, I, I appreciate everybody who wrote in. Some of them were more like big picture baseball, and I tried to keep it to the stackhouse questions here for the most part. So our first question I thought was pretty interesting. It's from Will Rich, who wants to know, did Billy Hamilton playing more shallow cost him a ranking in outs above average? And Will is, is mostly correct. In 2016, he played... 311 feet deep that was 18th shallowest last year he played 304 feet deep that was the shallowest 93 center fielders were on the field for a thousand pitches nobody played more shallow than billy hamilton did and his outs above average did drop in 2016 he had plus 24 outs above average that was first even though he only played 119 games in 2017 plus 10 still good ninth overall and he wants to know do you think playing more shallow cost him in the rankings the answer is i don't know but i I do have an explanation and I don't think it has anything to do with Billy Hamilton. We can look at the uh, specific balls that were hit to Billy Hamilton, and we can look at the difficulty, right, based on uh, time and direction and everything. So in 2016, the average outfielder would have caught 82% of the balls hit to Billy Hamilton, and he caught 90, right? So that's plus eight points right there, value added. In 2017, the average outfielder would have been expected to catch 87% of the balls hit to him, and he still caught 90. So he only added three points of value. He didn't really change. I think this is about opportunity. Now, whether that opportunity goes to the fact he was playing more shallow or a different pitching staff or just dumb batted ball luck, I don't actually know the answer to that. It would seem to me that a change in, in you know where you're playing would affect this in some way, but I can't say for sure how much. Yeah, it's it, his the the depth at which Hamilton plays uh, fascinates me, and one of the things you know I think that that really interests me about what Statcast outfield depth data is. I feel like we're just starting to kind of scratch the surface of what we can learn from it, and there's. You know, there's big gaps between the shallow. The shallowest guy plays, you know, is 304. The deepest is around 330, which is that's 26 it's feet. Considerable. That's, that's a huge difference. So, like, it, it also shows a lot about team strategy. Um, the Rangers, at three years of Statcast data, have regularly been the deep, have regularly played their outfielders among the deepest. So, I think you know we're starting to see kind of what it means, how it impacts a game, and you know, this is just a one-year blip, or maybe it's there's more to it. I don't know. You know, to me, playing deeper is smarter because you know, extra base hits are far more damaging than singles, but there's clearly some strategy going in, involved with the Reds choosing to play Hamilton so shallow. It, it did feel like we just didn't talk about him as much this year. In 2016, it felt like we were talking about a great Hamilton outfield play like every other day, and not so much in 2017. I, I think part of that is that Buxton kind of, you know, sucked up all the oxygen in that room, but it also does seem like he just wasn't making as many great catches, and maybe that's not about, he didn't get slower. Maybe it's not about him. It's no no outfielder can create an opportunity. You know, it's not like you get your four times up. You have to have a ball hit to you in a very specific way for you to have a chance to make a great play, yep. and I think that's what we're learning. Here's our second question, and this is from uh, Rob Falconrath, and he wants to know, which remaining free agent most benefited and was most hampered by their ballparks in 2017? Which is, I think, a really good question. Now, I focused on the hitters because a lot of the pitchers have already signed, and I don't really think Arietta or Darvish really had much impact from their ballpark. So this actually came out with some pretty interesting names. We looked at 342 hitters who had at least 100 plate appearances both at home and on the road in 2017. And if you look at the top 10 guys who were better at home, unsurprisingly, Charlie Blackman is atop that list, there were two free agents on that list. J.D. Martinez and Carlos Gonzalez. Let's just briefly talk about Gonzalez first, because that's obvious. Played at Coors Field. Uh, if you look at his Rockies career since 2009, he slugged 607 at home and he slugged 434 on the road. We're talking about like eight years worth of time here. Full stop. <laughs> Coors Field. All that said, I think G- Gonzalez is a great buy low candidate. 
I've been making the joke he'll be an Oriole for one year and $8 million since like August. But I, think I could see a, it in Arizona. I, a, I could see it in San Francisco, wherever. I think he's a great battle candidate. I think the skills are still there. You know, players, when they leave Coors Field, it gets easier. They don't hit as well at home, but it gets easier to hit on the road because they're not seeing the ball behave differently on a, you know, on a day-to-day right. basis. He, he hit better in September. Quality of contact was there. He's still not old. I really think he's going to be a great buy low candidate for someone. And I think someone will get him on a, a short deal just because of the way the market is going. The name here that really interests me, though, is J.D. Martinez. He was second behind only Charlie Blackman in terms of performing better at home. And what I really find interesting about this is he got traded mid-year. And he went from a park that's perceived as an extreme pitcher's park in Detroit to a park that's perceived as an extreme hitter's park in Arizona. But what's interesting to me about this is that in Arizona, this is true. With the Diamondbacks, his weighted on base was 536 at home, which is ludicrous. And on the road, it was 359. Major league average is like 325. So a little bit better than average on the road and just absurd at home. But with Detroit, it was the same thing. His road weighted on base with Detroit was 348. And at home, it was 467. We've, we've seen examples of this. Miguel Cabrera had massive home road splits. Alex Avila had massive home road splits. I've been talking for months about like my theory about this. And I, I swear I'm going to write up a whole thing about this in the next couple weeks. But I really I, I found it interesting for Martinez that it's not just about going to Arizona because he's way better at home in the first place. I don't think any of this is predictive of what he's going to do. But I just like it when numbers tell you a story you don't expect. Yeah, I mean, that Arizona split is 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 pretty remarkable. Also factor in, he was only there for half a season. He also had his four-homer game on the road. He was in Dodger Stadium. Which probably, actually, a four-homer game in half a season probably has <laughs> right. an impact on your weight on. Like, it's a blip that may, it probably raised his, his road weight on base like 15 points. Uh, yes, I agree with you. Um, how about the guys who are better on the road? If you look at all the uh, the top five who are better on the road, there's actually three free agents among the top five. We haven't talked about Austin Jackson pretty much at all, but I think he's a he's an interesting you know backup outfielder type. Uh, but there were two names here that really stood out to us: Logan Morrison and Todd Frazier. Right? Todd Frazier had a <laughs> these numbers at home are insane this year: 165 at home, uh, batting average, 302 on base, and 309 slugging. That's a 276 weighted on base. On the road, 385 on base and a 546 slugging. That, that is a massive difference. And, he, you know, the Yankee Stadium and, you know, yeah. Chicago, it's a pretty good hitter's park. Like J.D. Martinez, he was trade midseason. Although, for a right-handed pull hitter, Yankee Stadium's not not great. It's not great. But still, he, those are those are low numbers. Yeah, it's extreme. Now, if you look at his career prior to 2017, none of that holds up. Uh, he played in Cincinnati for a number of years. Again, I think this is like more of a one-year blip than anything. Uh, but I, I certainly would not expect wherever his home park is next year to have the same issues and then logan morrison has been a fascinating case around the stack office for uh, a couple weeks now he had 38 home runs last year he only hit 11 of them at home and if you you look at this he hit 219 at home a 310 on base a 398 slugging on the road 272 392 and a 628 slugging he also had the largest expected weighted on base gap too i don't know what to make of that but it, it's it's massive I mean, I think he's going to be a nice pickup for someone just because, I mean, him and Duda, there's, there's, they're out there, they're useful, they're probably not going to take a long-term commitment, and you're going to, you know, particularly if you're an American League team, you want those guys on, on your roster. So I think he's, he's going to be, he's going to be sort of like Carlos Gonzalez. I think he's going to be a good signing for someone just because like, there's, it's not, in the end, it's probably not going to cost a lot. Like He's probably going to get less, less than Yonder Alonso, and I might like him better. I, I agree with you. A guy, a guy like him or a guy like Lucas Duda, you can get a first baseman for a relatively low cost, uh, especially you, Colorado. That's what we've been talking about forever. Uh, question number three from Cameron Levy. He wants to know about regression candidates, guys whose stat cast numbers aren't quite as good as their outcomes. And again, we've talked about this for pitchers before. So we have a couple names on the list for hitters 
Uh, and we very simply just looked at their expected weighted on base, their you know actual quality of contact and amount of contact versus their weighted on base. And I think the first few names aren't all that surprising to me. Eduardo Nunez, you know, when he went to the Red Sox, kind of hit out of his mind, probably a little uh, for, better than expected. Yeah, for a free agent, he's a guy I would not, I would want. No. Well, the, the knee thing scares me because. Well, it's also just I've never thought he was that, that good of a player. Yeah, I mean, he's a fine backup. Uh, Marwin Gonzalez, uh, this is interesting for two reasons, right? He'd been not a great hitter for like six years and had this massive breakout. So his expected weighted on base was 320. His actual weighted on base was 387. So my first thought was, okay, well, that's his ballpark, right? He figured out how to pop balls over the left no if you look at his splits he was so much better on the road just like a lot of the Astros were it's such a weird thing I mean I, I I will take the under on him repeating this but it wasn't for the reason I thought yeah uh and Zach Cozart was tied uh also 332 expected 399 weighted on base now he is leaving a pretty good hitters park to go to Anaheim so I'll be interested to see if that changes for him I think he's a pretty good example of front offices getting smarter because he's coming off on the surface a career year he got a, a good deal, but like a modest by the modern standard, like a shortstop. I mean, he's not young, but like just what thirty-two year old shortstop coming off a year that he had. When you get three years for something like that, like thirty, yeah, like that's that, no one is putting too much emphasis. They're, they're, he, no one is overvaluing two thousand seventeen. No, There's not a reason to be biased on Zach Cozart's deal. Maybe a little bit, but like if he not, can, it's not crazy. If he can be an above average fielder and a league average hitter, I think they would happily take that. Yeah, and I mean they're moving him to third base, and even right. that. And also, even the Reds didn't even give him a qualifying offer. So it kind of right. goes to show that like, even like the team that had him wasn't really buying it. Uh, two other names on this list are very much speed guys, Malik Smith and D. Gordon. Unsurprisingly, you know they outperformed a little better. But then also, Jose Altuve, which I think makes sense because we talked about this. He didn't have like wild exit velocity or anything like that. I will absolutely consider him to be a very, very good player next year. But I sort of think he just had his career year. Right. Yeah, but at the same time, we also know he also gets a lot of infield hits, and as we know, weight on base does not factor in speed. So that's why you see a lot of speed guys on this list. Right. Question number four from Justin McVeigh: Will Starling Marte hit the ball in the air this year? I have no idea. Should he? That's the more important question. Uh, Starling Marte, for the first five seasons of his career, almost 2,500 plate appearances, a very good player, a 118 weighted runs created plus. Uh, 345 on base, 447 slugging. Obviously, last year was very poor, interrupted by a suspension. And if you look at his numbers, his ground balls and fly balls, really, between his good years and his poor year, it hasn't really changed. Uh, he's always got a ground ball rate around 50, a fly ball rate around, you know, 28. Uh, but his exit velocity on balls in the air has declined. It was 94 miles an hour two years ago, 92.6 in 2016, under 90 last year. So if that's the way it's going to go, then I would say maybe don't try to hit the ball in the air. You know, I mean, it's it's a very individual choice for everybody. You know, I would never recommend every single player hit the ball in the air more. But even when he was at his best, he was never a guy with crazy fly ball rates. Yeah, and he, he's a good example of why, going back to the Pirates for a second, like to me, they're one of the more high-variance teams in baseball because like he's a guy where like I could see a wide range of outcomes for 2018 same with McCutcheon same with Polanco same with Garrett Cole so it's like you know same with some of their young pitchers like Tyon and uh Chad Cool Chad Cool and the guy whose name escapes Trevor Williams uh Glasnow like all oh, these yeah, guys yeah. there's there's just like the error bars and the pirates are as wide as any and team. Felipe Rivera and Felipe, so like to me it's like I'm almost if I'm them I'm just like let's just roll it out there see what happens for two months and then we can we can reassess I think I agree with that because also I think you know obviously the Cubs and Cardinals are both you know strong teams but they're not impenetrable teams. They've each got their flaws. Like if it goes well for the Pirates, you could see this working. But yeah. I feel like they got to make some moves uh, to push this forward, and you know they still might. Our final question is from Andrew Bloom, and I just want to <laughs> I want to preemptively say we don't look for Luis Perdomo facts. They find us. Andrew Bloom wants to know who the fastest and slowest running pitchers are. 
And he asked that because we do not have pitchers up on our sprint speed leaderboards on Baseball Savant for reasons I will explain in just a minute. We looked at the fastest and slowest pitchers just for Andrew Bloom here. And who is on top of this list? But Luis Perdomo. We knew that. That should not be shocking. He had four triples this year. We've talked about this endlessly. His average uh, sprint speed was 29.2 feet per second. And if you look at the other end, who's the slowest pitcher? Look at this. Are you looking at your list right now? I'm looking. Garrett Cole. Okay. This is wildly unfair to Garrett Cole. This is not, not actually a real number I would actually publish anywhere. And I'll tell you why. Because we have Garrett Cole with two qualified runs. And what we have as a qualified run right now are uh, where you're going at least two bases because we want to get guys who are running at full speed. And it's unfair to him. We actually have him topping 25 feet per second twice, but on non-qualifying plays. This is why we don't publish pitchers because the guys, they just don't do this that often. I don't think it's fair to judge a guy based on like two or three hard runs a season. So that's why it's not there. I wouldn't actually put anything into Garrett Cole being slow, but Luis Perdomo is absolutely Well, Perdomo, we have a very good read on because of the aforementioned four triples. Right. He is by far the fastest pitcher in baseball, which is, as, as the you know the founder of the Luis Perdomo fan club, <laughs> uh, makes me uh, uh, extremely happy um, and make, makes him all the more reason that he's one of the more interesting players in baseball. And before anyone asks, how is Bartolo Colon not on the bottom of this list? Do you know why? Because he didn't even get to two qualified runs. This is my my like low qualifier list here. I dropped it all the way down to two, and he's still not even on it. He only had one qualified run. Uh, but if you must know, his fastest sprint speed of the year was on a sacrifice bunt where he got up all the way to 23.7 feet per second. For reference, Albert Pujols' average this year was 23 feet per second. So about where you would expect. But yeah, this is why we don't do pitchers. And to fully answer Andrew's question, the top five is Perdomo, Jeff Hoffman, Perdomo 29.2 feet per second, Jeff Hoffman 28.2, Carlos Martinez 28, Joe Ross 27.6, Travis Wood 27.6. Four young guys and a guy who plays outfield sometimes. And, and exactly. <laughs> uh f- League average is around 27. Perdomo at the high end. That's I mean, he's basically in like Trey Turner category, which I think is amazing. I, we need to get those two to race. I love that. Uh, so anyway, thank you very much for the questions. I enjoyed that. And I think we'll take some more going forward if you ever have any. And uh, hit us up with some ideas of what you'd like expected weighted on base to be called. That is our StatCast podcast for this week. We'll catch you next week.